five and the evening news at six. Up next is Stone's Throw on 94.1 KPFA. Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today, November the 4th, 2003, I want to throw myself into the journals of the poet Sylvia Plath. I do this because there's a movie out, oh yes, Gwyneth Paltrow as Sylvia Plath, The Mind Reels. The critics have been kind to this picture. I have yet to get myself there. I started to go the other day and thought I couldn't bear it. Uh must gird my loins, grind my teeth, whatever. I will be content if if they just get the 1950s scene adequately. Uh I do not demand verisimilitude, just certain respect for history. Um, you know, the right ambiance. Uh, a little regard for who we were then. Um, see, Sylvia Plath was born the year before I was. Uh, she would be then, yes, 70 now. Uh, along with, I was thinking of her... Um, a woman she considered one of her major competitors, Adrian Rich, who lives now down in Santa Cruz, um, a happy, significant elder. Well, happy, who knows? Um, but certainly living and certainly working. Yes. Uh, if this film reaches students or anyone who might be intrigued, by the poet, someone who might want to pursue Sylvia Plath further, find her where she actually lived, uh, then what the hell? There are new books out. Um, Diane Middlebrook has a book out. It's The Letters of Ted and Sylvia. Oh, yes. Now that Ted Hughes, the husband, um, poet laureate of England, has left us, uh, the material is up for grabs and there will be more and more material. I um, like the book Rough Magic. There's the Savage God. Uh, you'll find a plethora of materials if you go to the library and uh, uh, look for Sylvia. The Bell Jar, well, yes, I, I think it's useful, especially for young students. There's a piece in the journals here about the execution of the Rosenbergs that took 
place in 1953. Uh, it comes out of that period, the period when Sylvia was working for Mademoiselle back in New York. She got a intern scholarship. Yes. <laughs> I remember 51, Jackie Kennedy was offered one for Vogue magazine. She won over 2,000 applicants. But Jackie Kennedy decided, well, her mother decided she should go to Europe with her sister Lee Radswell and, uh, just be a princess, just be a rich lady. She wasn't going to work. Sylvia, on the other hand, had to grub for every little grant and little bit of cash she could find. Um, I think, well, I don't like to offer opinions. I'd rather just read you the journal. I, I do feel, uh, like many critics, that Sylvia was consumed by the mythos of her time, you know, Western civilization. You have to die for your art. It's this competitive compulsion to be the best, perfectionism, uh, the need to win, to succeed. Of course, even Sylvia Plath uh, at some point began to ask the question, to win what? To what end? I always think uh, of her tragic line, the one about the ultimate ambiguity of all human endeavor. Sylvia Plath wrote, quote, I simply cannot see where there is to get to. At that point, I thought, if only, if only, if only she had come across uh, a Zen teacher, a little Zen enlightenment. Uh, but always, always, she ran into um, critics, especially among the men, you know, the notion of having your heart broken by a rejection letter. That sort of thing, if she had just lived a little longer, just long enough for her rage to cool, for her passions, you know, to be tempered by wisdom. Um, I always say that uh, a sense of humor can save your life, folks, but it does in your tragic sense. And she was not willing. She was not willing to do that. Uh, it's funny, she writes a lot in her journal about a lot, a little about Marilyn Monroe, would you believe? <laughs> Another woman who crashed out in order to create a mythos about herself. Uh, let's just jump right into the journals. The little paperback that I have uh, is a much-chewed, dog-eared copy of the journals of Sylvia Plath. The editors are Ted Hughes and Francis McCullough. Francis admits to... Um, Many, many omissions. She says that, uh, <laughs> as she says, quote, there are quite a few nasty bits missing. Plath had a very sharp tongue and tended to use it on nearly everybody, even people of whom she was inordinately fond. So Frances McCullough took it, um, took it as her privilege to cut these, um, what she calls tart. Remarks, goody for her. The foreword by Ted Hughes, he simply admits that he uh, destroyed uh, one of the last two journals. Let's see. Uh, the one that continued to within three days of Sylvia's death. He writes, I destroyed it because I did not want her children to have to read it. In those days, I regarded forgetfulness as an essential part of survival, period. The other disappeared. 
Well, at least he admits to his crimes, yes. It's interesting. Let me read you, just for the sake of soap opera, just a little, just a little snippet of what Ted Hughes has to say at the beginning of this um, uh, journal. He says, In spite of the care Sylvia devoted to each thing she wrote, as soon as it was well finished, she cast it behind her with something like contempt, sometimes with rage. Such things were not what she wanted at all, but what did she want? In a different culture, perhaps, she would have been happier. There was something about her reminiscent of what one reads of Islamic fanatic lovers of God. Here I have my own little footnote down at the bottom, yes. Definitely a suicide blonde, what we used to call a suicide blonde. <laughs> Ted Hughes goes on, a craving to strip away everything from some ultimate intensity, some communion with spirit or with reality or simply with intensity itself. She showed something violent in this, something very primitive, perhaps very female, a readiness, even a need to sacrifice everything to the new birth. With her, this was vividly formulated at every level of her being. The negative phase of it, logically, is suicide. But the positive phase, more familiar in religious terms, is the death of the old false self in the birth of the new real one. And this is what she finally did achieve after a long and painful labor. Ariel and the associated later poems give us the voice of that self. They are the proof that it arrived. All her other writings except these journals are the waste products of its gestation. Ted Hughes goes on to write a little more here. Sylvia Plath was a person of many masks, both in her personal life and in her writings. Some were camouflage, cliché facades, defensive mechanisms, involuntary. Some were delicate poses, uh, deliberate. They were attempts to find the keys to one style or another. These were the visible faces of her lesser selves, her false or pro provisional selves, the minor roles of her inner drama. Though I spent every day with her for six years and was rarely separated from her for more than two or three hours at a time. I never saw her show her real self to anybody, except perhaps in the last three months of her life. Her real self showed itself in her writing just for a moment, three years earlier, and when I heard it, the self I had married after all and lived with and knew well, in that brief moment, three lines recited as she went out through a doorway, I knew that what I had always felt, always felt must happen, yes, had now begun to happen, and that her real self, being the real poet, would now speak for itself, would throw off all those lesser and artificial selves that had monopolized the words up to that point. 
It was as if a dumb person suddenly spoke. He goes on to write at length about how rare it is to have a real self. And that, of course, is what I mean by the 1950s, the authenticity of the, <laughs> the, the mask, the facade, yes. Aha. This is so difficult. Um, for me, I'm remembering my own, uh, time in the 50s when I was referred to as the, uh, the veneer girl, the girl who was, um, a phony. Someone called me phony, phony. I like that. But obviously those of us who had had the difficult childhood, the dead parent and all of these good things, uh, Life back then was difficult for anyone who was paying attention. We did play roles, it's true. Let's jump right in here to where Sylvia talks. Um, she has a wonderful piece about her father. Uh, I'm all the way up to 58, 59. These journals cover the years from 1957 to 1962. This little paperback, I'm sure, is still available in the uh, used bookstores or in um, in um, your local bookstore. Actually, yeah, part one is Smith College, 1950 to 55, and then it ends in 1962. Cambridge, Smith, Boston, England, right. Mm -hmm. Let's jump right in here. Is September of 1959. A dream last night of my father making an iron statue of a deer which had a flaw in the casting of the metal. The deer came alive and lay with a broken neck, had to be shot, blamed father for killing it through faulty art. Hmm. Relation to sick cats around here. Catherine Ann Porter can't speak or eat with people. When she is writing, a horrid priest came to the back door of the mansion yesterday, raw, bright red face, looked to have gone under carrot scraper, black coat, white neckband. He chewed some gum, rumped, rubbed coins together, asked me to show him around mansion. I grew cold, said I was not authorized to do so. He said, what are you, a writer? a repulsive, ignorant, oddly disgusting man. I'm so impatient, yet the one important thing is to pile up good work. If if I could break into a meaningful prose that expressed my feelings, I would be free, free to have a wonderful life. I'm desperate when I'm verbally repressed, must lure myself into ways, the ways of loquacity. My first job to open my real experience like an old wound then extend it then invent on the drop of a feather a whole multicolored bird I'll study study one or two New Yorkers <laughs> of course I depend on the mirror of the world I have one poem I'm sure of the snake one other than that no subjects the world is a blank page I don't even know the names of these pine trees, and worse, I make no real effort to learn. Or the stars or the flowers. 
I read May Swenson's book yesterday, several poems I liked. Yes. I write as if an eye were upon me. That is fatal. The New Yorker rejected my two exercises as if they knew that's what they were. They are still considering my Christmas poem, although I'm sure they will not take it. The adrenaline of failure. A black hornet sits on the screen, scratching and polishing its yellowed head. Again the rains fall on rooftops, the color of a pool table. If I could cut from my brain the phantom of competition, the ego center of self-consciousness could become a vehicle, a pure vehicle of others, the outer world. My interest in other people is too often one of comparison, not of pure intrigue with the unique otherness of identity. I should forget the outer world of appearances and publishing and checks and success. Be true to an inner heart. Yet I fight against a simple-mindedness, a narcissism, a protective shell against competing, against being found wanting. To write for itself to do things for the joy of them. What a gift of the gods. I create Agatha, a mad, passionate Agatha. Immediately I want her husband to keep bees, and I know nothing of bees. My father knew it all. How much of life I have known, love, disillusion, madness, hatred, murderous passions. How to be honest... I see beginnings, flashes, yet how to organize them knowledgeably, to finish them. I will write mad stories, but honest. I know the horror of primal feelings, obsessions. I write a ten-page diatribe against the dark mother. The mummy, mother of shadows. An analysis of the Electra complex. I'm reading here from the journals of Sylvia Plath, and I notice um, at this point, when she's begging herself to figure out how to finish things, I have a footnote here at the bottom. It's a line from Emily Dickinson, who wrote, My business is circumference. Yes, to surround the thing, capture it. Uh, <laughs> and more and more here she writes about uh, Mummy, the story Mummy. Uh, actually, in the film, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is playing Sylvia Plath, and I notice with some interest that Gwyneth Paltrow's mother is playing Aurelia Plath, the mother of Sylvia. <laughs> Now, that's a trip. Anyway, I will go on here Sunday, October the 4th. We're in 1959. Marilyn Monroe appeared to me last night in a dream as a kind of fairy godmother. 
there was an occasion of chatting with an audience, much as the occasion with uh, T.S. Eliot uh, turned out, I suppose. I spoke almost in tears of how much she and Arthur Miller meant to us, although they could, of course, not know us at all. <laughs> she gave me an expert manicure. I had not washed my hair. Asked her about hairdressers, saying, no matter where I went, they always imposed a horrid cut on me. She invited me to visit her during the Christmas holidays, promising a new, flowering life. I finished the mummy story, really a simple account of symbolic and horrid fantasies. Then was electrified this morning when I made an effort to come out of my lethargy, actually wash a pile of laundry and my hair, I was electrified to read in a young case history confirmations of certain images in my story. Child who dreamt of a loving, beautiful mother as a witch or animal, mother going mad in later life, grunting like pig, barking like dog, growling like bear, in a fit of lycanthropy, the word chessboard was used in an identical situation of a supposedly loving but ambitious mother who manipulated the child on the, quote, chessboard of her egotism. In my story, I had used chessboard of her desire. Then image of eating mother or grandmother all mouth as in red riding hood i had used the image of the wolf all this relates in the most meaningful way my instinctive images are perfectly valid uh, psychologically however i am the victim rather than the analyst my fiction is only a naked recreation of what I felt as a child and later. Oh, it must be true. Forget saleable stories. Just write to recreate a mood, an incident. If this is done with color and feeling, it becomes a story. So try recollecting. Not to manipulate the experience, but to let it unfold and recreate itself with all the tenuous, peculiar associations the logical mind would short-circuit. Tuesday. Yesterday. Very bad, oppressed, heavy skies, gray, but with no release. It's strange here as I go through... Uh, there's an iteration over and over and over again. She does point out that when she writes in her journal, Sylvia Plath's journals, that she usually writes there in the bad times, the dark times. But over and over again, there are these statements about her physical malaise. I think, um, oh, even of the Bronte sisters. I'm wondering, yes, about the body. Would be nice to know more about the physical pathology, these terrible headaches. This woman seems to be in uh, great heat. She's cooking. Mm -hmm. She goes on to write that the New Yorker accepted the Winter's Tale poem 
felt pleased, especially after that Harper's rejection, then feel oddly barren. My sickness is when words draw in their horns and the physical world refuses to be ordered, recreated, or arranged and selectum, selected. I am a victim of it then, not the master. I am reading Elizabeth Bishop with great admiration, her fine originality always surprising, never rigid, flowing, juicier than Marion Moore, who is her godmother. When will I break into a new line of poetry? I feel trite. If only I could get one good story. I dream too much, work too little. My drawing is gone to pot. Yes, I'm... I must remember it. I must remember. I do bad drawings at the first. And then she goes on with a list of things to do that will give her self-respect. And, yes, then the next entry, very depressed today, unable to write a thing, menacing gods, outcast on a cold star, unable to feel anything but an awful helpless numbness. I look down into the warm, earthy world, into a nest of lovers' beds, baby cribs, meal tables, all the solid commerce of life in this earth, and I feel apart, enclosed in a wall of glass. Again, a footnote here, that's that bell jar, uh, I think it's what psychiatrists are happy to call a dissociative sensibility. <laughs> yes, can't feel a thing. Back here in Sylvia's notes, she writes, Caught between the hope and promise of my work, the one or two stories that seem to catch something, the one or two poems that build a little colored island of words, and a hopeless gap between that promise and the real world of other people's poems and stories and novels. My shaping spirit of imagination is far from me, painful as if part were cut out of my brain, anesthetizing myself. This is a curse, curse of vanity, my inability to lose myself in a character, in a situation always myself, myself. What good does it do to be published if I am producing nothing? If only a group of people were more important to me than the idea of a novel, I might, I might begin. These little artificial stories get nothing of the feeling the drama of life, when they should be real, more intense than life itself. I am dead already. I pretend an interest in astrology, botany I never follow up. Oh, this comes so natural to some people. Ted is my salvation. He is so rare, so special. How could anyone else stand me? Of course, I might get a Ph.D., teach in New York, work at a career. It is hard with our unplanned drifting to do much in this way. I'm trying to remember. I'm looking at the date. 
I'm looking at the date on this piece and remembering uh, how someone said to me at exactly this same time in my life, oh, if you could only find someone who would lift you out of yourself, who would take you away from yourself, lift you up. She goes on, Sylvia goes on to talk about all the lessons she takes from Ted Hughes. We'll have more of Sylvia next week. Uh, I'm going to stick with Sylvia for a while. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of Lazar, author of Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, said recently that the newly adopted Pacifica Foundation bylaws are a social revolution that places the listener at the very heart of the radio network. That these new bylaws may make Pacifica the world's most democratic media organization. We at KPFA would like to urge our listeners to make this a reality by running for the local station board. What do we need? Talented, hardworking listener sponsors from every background and community to sit on KPFA's new station board. There are 18 seats to fill, so we need lots of candidates. If you'd like to run, or you know someone else who would, please act now. You can call us for information at 510-848-6767, extension 626. That's 510-848-6767, extension 626. Or for more details, you can visit our website. It's www.kpfa.org. One, two, three.